Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 6. We'll be looking at a part of the text that we read just a moment ago. John 6, verses uh, 35 to 40. That's where we'll be this morning. Let's read those verses again. I'll lead us. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Rock of Ages cleft for me. It's a timeless hymn and I think sometimes it's sung with little awareness of its primary message. After all. How many times in the last week have you used the verb cleft? (laughs) What does it mean? What are we referring to? Why does the refrain keep getting back to a rock? What we normally think of as uh, something that has no capacity for action. Doing something like clefting, whatever that is. A cleft is uh, just uh, a niche in the rock, something uh, that would provide uh, a shelter, safety uh, in time of storm. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of predicament before where your life, your physical life was so threatened that you sought shelter, you you looked for cover, you, you, you were trying to find some safe, safer place. My wife and I, when we first moved to Los Angeles, ended up in this interesting um, community. It was something of a suburb of L.A. It was about 30 minutes away from where all the action was. A little town called Castaic. It was a truck stop, literally a truck stop. And what was so interesting about this landscape is that it was... uh, cheap. <laughs> it, it just didn't cost much to live in Castaic, uh, not just because of the frequency of 18-wheelers that made its way through the little town, uh, but also because of its geographical location. It literally sat at the base of a dam. It's not the place you want to live. This massive lake, Lake Castaic, would sit 
uh, underneath I mean, what seems to be probably 100 feet of brick and mortar and stone. And so in, Cal- in excuse me, earthquake-prone Southern California, we found ourselves uh, at the base of a dam. <laughs> We've never experienced earthquakes before. I'm from North Carolina. They just don't happen there. And so, needless to say, in our tenure there in that particular town, we were not only disturbed by earthquakes, but we were disturbed by the potential of what could happen afterward. And so, it would happen from time to time. It didn't happen the way that I expected, that uh, we would be just going about our day, and then all of a sudden, without uh, any particular warning, there would be this feeling That wasn't like the normal, what I thought would be an earthquake feeling. I assumed that earthquakes shake things, and sometimes they do, but not always. Sometimes they sway. (laughs) And I remember feeling that the first time, and I saw the stuff on, uh, on our little floating shelf, and I was like, I think it just moved, and I think I just moved. And I had no way to fathom, you know, like what had just taken place until a few seconds later and it hit me. I'm like, oh, no, this is this is a tremor. This is a potential earthquake. And you know, the next thing that came to mind, we're by a dam. (laughs) Like what happens (laughs) if this I mean, like you start thinking, how do you get away from this, this potential onslaught of destruction? It would happen two or three more times while we lived in that particular uh, location. And and it was those moments, it was those unsettling times where it's like, I need some safety. And there is nothing in this little apartment that can provide it. I think we all from from time to time find ourselves in these moments where uh, we know that something bad could happen out there one day. And then we feel this shake this move. God rocks our life in some way, and we're thinking, I need help. (laughs) I need protection. I need safety. That's why the Rock of Ages was written. Believers find such safety. They find such protection in Christ. They run into him, the rock, and find safety. There are several things that that sway us from time to time, things that shake us at our very core, things that uh, should prompt us to run to shelter in Christ. Occasionally it could be uh, the failure of others who claim to be in Christ. Does that ever rock you? We've seen in recent years Uh, the devastation of several uh, celebrity Christians who at one time seemed to be in the faith and then ultimately walked away. And you see that, you hear that, you comprehend that, and you think, whoa, that's scary. (laughs) That's upsetting. That, That shakes me. It's not only the failure of others who claim to be in Christ, but sometimes it's our own personal failure. It could be either our personal failure in sin in which we struggle immensely, or it could actually be uh, just particularly trying circumstances in which we think, I must, Lord, be doing something wrong. It's a shake. It's something that that makes you aware of your capacity uh, for destruction. You want safety. You want deliverance. And then, I think for others, 
there's just that general unrest. Those who are not in Christ that, that wonder, could I really be safe? Is there really a security that, that transcends anything that this physical world could offer? Some of you may even be here today and you've contemplated uh, what it may look like for you to be in Christ as opposed to out of him. And you're concerned, could I really live this out? Could I really pull this thing off? Could I really execute this? It's an unsettling prospect to consider. And yet in all these things, this un- these unsettling times, these disturbing thoughts, what God intends to do as evidenced by this text, is to lead us to find shelter, safety, security in Christ and in none other. That's what Jesus is doing here in this text, by the way. The discourse is called the bread of life discourse. Fred did a wonderful job reading the entire text. It happens in a particular context that you may find interesting. Uh, You've grown up in church and you've heard of the feeding of the 5,000. That was a stupendous event. As Jesus probably fed something closer to 20,000 because 5,000 recorded were men and naturally they would have had their families with them. So you have to think that the original uh, audience is stunned that this particular man can provide this level of satiety, of, of protection, of provision for so many people. In fact, they're out in like a wilderness type setting and it seems like it's bringing to mind things from uh, the Exodus. Like, whoa, God is doing something special here through this guy. And what happens is when the, the feeding of the 20,000, if we're going to be more specific, is over, uh, Jesus uh, like ends up on the other side of the shore some interesting miraculous circumstances by which he does that but the people recognize that hey this guy moved the guy that provided all the bread we need to find him and so they go and run around the shore to find this guy because naturally they want more food <laughs> they're like hey he fed us last time why can't he do it again uh, we're gonna get we were hungry again so let's just keep following him maybe he'll provide for us over and over and over again And Jesus capitalizes upon this opportunity to teach them about what they really need, what will really satisfy them, what will really keep them safe, what will really keep them alive. And this is how he frames it. I am the bread of life. You don't just need the physical bread that was provided. What you need is me. I will sustain you. I will give you life. And so he's trying to entice them, if you will, to partake of him, to believe in him, to trust in him. And one of the first things that he does in this discourse is basically saying, hey, if you partake of me, if you believe in me, here is one of the inevitable outcomes. Here's one of the benefits. It will be total security, safety to the end. You can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that that which you need more than anything else will be provided for you. And that's the purpose of our text. Particularly here in verses 35 to 40, what we see are two sources of the assurance that is provided in Christ. Two sources 
of this assurance that we all long for. You want that safety, you want that protection, you want that security when life rocks you. This is where you'll get it from. Uh, the, the first is the election of the Father in verses 35 to 37. The second source of assurance is the execution of the Son, his follow-through. The election of the Father, the execution of the Son. That's verses 38 to 40. So let's look at this, this first source of assurance, the election of the Father. But notice with me again in your text, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, let's just pause here and do a little bit of cultural clarification on the word bread. Anyone listening to this metaphor in that first century world would have understood Jesus to be saying not that he is an optional pastry with your dinner, but that he is essential for life. Bread is that, in that culture, which is essential to life. It's crazy that I have to even explain this these days because our world has really changed over the last 10 years. I, I actually remember moving out to Southern California and all of these people, they had different food opinions than I did. And one of them, I had never heard this before, was that bread was a bad thing. <laughs> they were, I, I had literally never heard the word gluten-free until 2010. I didn't even know what that was. And you know what? A lot of those people do it. They stay away from bread. <laughs> and it's now kind of the thing, like, oh, no, no carbs for me. I, look, I've bought in. I, I try to stay away from it when I can. And yet, in a first century context, nobody would have thought, oh, bread's an optional thing. In fact, it was essential to life. Bread was that which could be cheaply made. It's what sustained whole populations of people. If you look in third world countries today, they are largely sustained by grains. In fact, bread is often translated food. The NIV uses uh, the food of life in this context. In the Hebrews, the same thing. Uh, the house of bread, Bethlehem, that all could also mean the house of food. Food, bread, same thing, because it was such an essential part of what you ate. In fact, the main dish was bread, and everything else was just a compliment. You, you need to imagine the way that uh, the ancient uh, Near Easterner would eat. Uh, essentially, it would be a bread meal. Imagine like um, uh, lavash or nam or pita bread or something like that. Like, the way that they would do it is they would put some vegetables that would be cooked in the middle of this thing. If they had some meat, it would be in this big bowl. And do you know how they ate? They didn't have forks. They didn't have spoons. They would take bread. They would break it. And that was the way that they ate everything else. They would all scoop into that common bowl. There was no meal without bread. You got the idea? So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's not just saying, I'm tasty, I'm good, I'm a great dessert. He's saying, I am essential. Essential for what? For life. For life. You want life, you want to be alive as opposed to dead. You want this to come from heaven. You want heavenly life. I mean, just look at the verse in front of where we read, verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What will give people that heavenly life that, is, that can only come from God? It is Him. In fact, it is not just 
heavenly life. It is eternal life. Verse 35 says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying that if you partake of me, you'll never have to worry about life again. You won't have to worry about hunger. You won't have to worry about thirst. Think about it. Every time you eat, and somebody could be more of an expert in this area than I am, but stay with me here. When you eat, from what I understand, you have the capacity to keep yourself alive for about 40 more days on average. So think about it. Uh, You're going to eat lunch. In just a few moments, you've bought yourself maybe another 40 days if you continue to drink water. Now, water is a little different. Uh, Water, from what I understand, you've got about three days. Again, depending on the conditions. But every time you take that sip of water, you've given yourself three more days of life. It's always counting down. The clock is always going down. Next meal, guess what? The clock on your existence begins to go down until you eat again, until you drink again. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to provide something for you in which the clock will stop. There will be no countdown. You will live forever. This is eternal life. What is he speaking of here? I think that he is clearly alluding to that text that we looked at together as a church just a few weeks ago in Isaiah 55, where God promises to his people that they can come and eat and drink of him without money, without price, and they will be forever satisfied. This was the promise of eternal salvation, and Jesus is saying that it is contained in me. It is contained in me. If you want that, it will come from me. And so here's the question for us, friends. All right, if Jesus is the bread of life, how then do we partake of him? Now, this is where things get interesting, because when you continue to read through the text, you get to some weird-sounding stuff at the end, do you not? You get to the end of chapter 6, and like he, he follows the metaphor to its logical end, and he says this, uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and you could just hear the shock of the crowd as that would be communicated, what in the world? How does one actually partake of the bread of life? Is it some form of cannibalism? Did you know that the Roman Empire uh, hunted out Christians on the basis of the fact that they were cannibalistic and incestuous? (laughs) They called each other brother and sister and they kissed each other and uh, they supposedly ate the flesh and drank the blood of this guy named Jesus. So on those trumped-up charges, Christianity was outlawed in the first century. Uh, But is that really what Christians were doing in the first century? Were they literally eating flesh and drinking blood? How does one partake of Jesus if he is the bread of life? Well, Jesus defines it here. I I think we all understand what a metaphor is. But he explains the metaphor in the first place. What you need to understand, friends, especially as you read a text of Scripture like this, is you can't just jump to the end where he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to let the author define his terms. And so how does he define how one comes to him, how one partakes of him? Well, let's look at our text. Verse 35, he says, 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does it mean to partake of Jesus? It means to come to him. It means to believe in him. That's how you partake of him. By coming to him for life, for protection, for safety, for sustenance, as opposed to something else. By believing in him, trusting in him, instead of something or someone else. Both of these things complement one another. Uh, We go to a particular source because we are seeking some kind of life. We are seeking that which will protect us, uh, the popular sources that are out there today, as opposed to the Savior who is Jesus, would be, in no particular order, stuff, significance, society, and sex. These are the ultimates in our own culture that people seek to find some type of satiety, some, some satisfaction, some sustenance, some life. Think of stuff. People work their fingers to a bone, neglect their families largely for what? Just a little more. Just a, a little more stuff that I can put in my garage, that I can put in my storage unit. Uh, you know, like I can take, you know, I can build houses and then tear them down and build bigger houses. I mean, welcome to Naples, folks. We're surrounded by people who love stuff, and they think, you know, if I just keep working, if I just keep contributing to the bank account, that in the end, I will find safety. I will have security. Another option is that of significance. Some people aren't in it for the money. They're in it for the praise. They're in it for the fame. That they are clamoring for people to recognize them. They want to be known as important, as as having made an impact. They think that there's life there. They think that if they feed from significance, that they will be satiated, that they will be satisfied. And without being crass, I think that it would be fair to say that the suicide rates among those who are rich and famous would testify otherwise. It does not fill. It does not satisfy. Stuff can't do it. Significance can't do it. Society can't do it. Again, this is just us wanting to be uh, known uh, uh, among a larger group of people, uh, making a name, making a contribution. And I'll quickly move on. Sex can't do it. By that I mean uh, the desire for sexual gratification. It is so fascinating, and I mentioned this just last week, that Satan has done this masterful job of redefining us as inherently sexual beings, primarily sexual beings. And so what does that mean? People seek real satisfaction in either uh, sexual release and having sex with someone or being sexually desired. It tends to be that, that women want the desire, they want to be desired, men want the fulfillment, and guess what? When that experience is over, one is still empty. Jesus says, look, don't go to those things, but come to me for life. Come to me for satisfaction. Come to me for safety. Don't trust in those things. Don't believe in those things, but believe in me. This is where you'll find life eternal. This is where you'll be forever satisfied, fully and finally. That's what it means to partake 
uh, to come in faith to him. And, And here's the problem, friends. I want you to note the next verse. Some people don't believe, even though that's all we need to do to find this satisfaction and safety, Jesus acknowledges some don't believe. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Those people saw who he was, that that he had done these signs from heaven, and they still didn't believe. They still didn't trust in him. Uh, To use the metaphor from earlier, they still didn't come to him in faith. And this is an important problem to recognize because it's going to help us get an answer on why coming to Jesus is such an assuring thing. Why is it that our friends don't believe? Think about that. They've heard the same message you have. Why is it that our family members don't believe? They've heard the same truth. They've been exposed to these things. I I like to ask about friends and family because they come from the same background as us. What makes us any different than those who do not believe versus those who do? Here's the better question. From where whence does saving faith come? Where does it come from? Have you ever asked that? I mean, we could say, all right, you just need to believe in Jesus to be saved, but here's the better question. Where does the belief come from? How is it that some people do believe and others do not answer? Look at the next verse, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What's the difference between saving faith? And those who reject faith. The text says that it is up to the election of the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. This is an amazing thing. The text is teaching us that the Father has given or entrusted some people to the Son. And the ones that he has entrusted to the Son are the ones who are believing in him. So if you want to go like behind the curtain, if you will, to figure out where faith comes from, according to the text, it's rooted in God's plan. He he chose for some people to come to the Son in faith. Now, I want you to understand, let's let's just like translate this practically. That means if, if you're in here today and you don't believe in Jesus, one of two things is true of you. Either God has not given you to the Son, and that is why you do not believe, or He has given you to the Son, and you will one day soon believe. But faith is ultimately something that comes from God. Faith is graciously enabled by God. Now, I know that there would be a point of resistance here, so I want to walk you through a couple texts that will help you see this, because You've got to get it. I am not just doing some theological fine-tuning this morning. Your assurance of salvation rests in grasping the election of the Father. So here's what I'm trying to help you understand. That if you're here today and you believe, God enabled that. On what basis would I say that God did that? Well, let me start off with a very famous verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Are you following the logic of the verse? 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, right? But then he makes it clear. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. He he even gave you the faith. (laughs) That's an amazing thing to think about. Let me give you another one. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. Where Paul says to, to the Philippians. God has not only graced you or gifted you with the capacity to suffer. But God has gifted you or graced for you to believe. Look it up on your own time. Philippians 1.29. It is the exact same thing. You know, you know why you believe? You want some insight? You want to see like a good picture of this? There's a beautiful illustration of this in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. There's this lady named Lydia. She's a wealthy woman. She's a seller of purple. Uh, Paul preaches the gospel to her. And you know what it says? It says that she responds in basically in belief to Paul's message. But you know what it says before that? That God opened her heart. God opened her heart. God enabled her hard heart to respond to him in faith. Even faith is something that God has done. One historic theological document put it this way, and I only quote it because it's clear. God graciously softens the elect, however obstinate, and inclines them to believe. God graciously softens the elect, however obstinate, and inclines them to believe. So, I mean, here's the question. Like, how did you arrive at, at this point that you believed in Jesus? I, I just want you to consider for a moment. Uh, let, let's drop the Bible verses for a second. Let's translate it to your experience. When did you believe in Jesus? When did you trust him? In? If you can think of a moment in time or a general period of time in which that happened, I want you to think, when did it happen? Okay, you got that in your mind? Now, let me ask you, what led you to finally say yes or finally trust in Jesus? You could say, well, the guy was preaching the gospel and it was really persuasive. Or I finally realized all those things I had known for my whole life that, that needed to be true. Well, let me ask you this. Under what circumstances, how did you end up at that particular place listening to that particular sermon? You say, well, I just wanted to be there that day. Why did you want to be there that day? Because I needed to do that. What made you think you needed to do that? You just keep asking yourself, where did that come from? How did you end up in that place? If you say, well, no, Justin, for me, it was something that I had heard as a kid. Who determined for you to hear that as a kid? Who determined where you would be born and what messages you would hear and not hear? Do you understand that like some of us could have been born in like Iran? And yet God has graciously decided for some of us to be born in a place in which we would hear the gospel regularly and repeatedly. Were you in charge of where you were born? Were you in charge of what messages you listened to and you didn't listen to? Hear me carefully, friends. If you want to understand how coming to Christ in faith should be a matter of great assurance to you, you must grasp the fact that even the believing that got you in and will keep you in comes from God. Let me flesh this out a little more because my heart for you is that you would walk out of here today if you're in Christ and just be confident in Him and not have any doubts. My concern here is that our assurance is only as strong as our confidence 
in the Father's election. Our assurance is only as strong as our confidence in the Father's election. Jesus says, look, I want you to understand something. If you're going to partake of me, if you're going to partake of me, here's the deal. The Father has chosen for you to do so. He's entrusted you to me, and, and this is what he says next. For those that have been entrusted to me, I will never cast them out. So if you're believing in Jesus today, notice what he says. He says, I will never cast him out. Now, this is a, a, a fascinating uh, literary device, one that I did not know the name of until this week. So I don't want you to hear me label this and think, wow, that guy knows a lot about literature. I, I'm working on it. Lytotes. Lytotes. It's a literary device. It's a literary device in which somebody states uh, the opposite of something in a negative way to affirm the positive. I'll give you a couple of modern examples, and then I want you to apply it to what you see here in this text. All right, ready for the first one? This ain't my first rodeo. This ain't my first rodeo. Now, what am I saying in that? I'm not saying, hey, just in case you want to know, I've done this before. What I am actually affirming is I have sufficient experience for whatever task you're considering for me. I've been there. I've done that. It's not about uh, this being not being my first one. It's actually about something stronger than that. Lytotes. Uh, here's another one. You won't be sorry if you go try this new Cuban restaurant. You won't be sorry. We're not saying in that, no, you're, you know, you're going to be mediocre about it, but, you know, like, you're, you won't be totally sorry. <laughs> what are we saying? We're like, you will love the new Cuban restaurant. It, there's other places in Scripture in which this is used. Um, Acts chapter 16, no, 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 no. Acts 21:39, where, where uh, Paul is describing uh, his, his city that he came from in Tarsus, and the text says it was no insignificant city. It was no insignificant city. What is going on there is saying this was a immense city. This was a place of reputation. This was a place that is popular. All right, now you ready? For all those who are believing in Jesus, for all those who have been entrusted to his care by the Father, uh, what does the text say? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. <laughs> He's not just saying, all right, I'm going to let you hang around. I'm not going to kick you out. I, I, when, I, when you read that, literally, without an awareness of that literary device, you're thinking, like, oh, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for not kicking me out. That's nice of you. He's saying more than that. He's saying, I eagerly and aggressively will retain you in my possession. If you are believing in me, trusting in me, if you've come to me, if you're one of the ones that the Father has given to me, I will hold on to you intensely. He is not just saying, as some translations will put it, that, all right, I, I'm going to let you come if you want to come. What he's saying is, I will not cast you out. The Latodes is the opposite of it. So to be cast out means that you had to be in. He's saying, I will retain you in my possession. It is a beautiful promise.
Friends, I think what we need to understand that it, if, if you're here today and you find yourself clinging to Jesus in faith, I want you to understand the bigger picture. You are actually in the grip of God's grace. You are holding on because he is holding on to you. You are holding on because he is holding on to you. One of, one of my children, just a couple weeks ago, in light of the message from Ephesians 1, uh, asked me, how do I know if I am elect? <laughs> how do I know if I'm elect? I'm like, uh, fantastic question. And my response was simple. We know that we have been elect if we are clinging to trusting in Jesus. That's who the elect are. We are gripping on to Christ because God the Father has gripped onto us and placed us in the care of His Son. I told you a few weeks ago that I, I grew up in a denomination that not only would deny uh, election as being something that happened in eternity past, but do you know something else they, they denied, something else that I used to affirm and teach? I think it's good for you to know mistakes that I've made in my past. Uh, the, the logical outcome of thinking that you're the one that comes to Jesus is this, that you're the one that can leave Jesus. Now, what I liked about the people that I grew up with, and I mean this, is they were logically consistent. Everybody else around us was saying, you choose to come to Jesus, but once you're in, you're in. You can't get out. And I'm thinking, that doesn't make much sense. If you chose to get in, you could choose to get out. We used to, somebody would say, um, they quote that passage from John 10 that says, uh, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. And the way that we would respond to that is, oh yeah, well no man could pluck them out of my hand, but we could certainly walk out. He's not going to hold us in. <laughs> you know what the text is saying? Wrong. He's going to hold you in. You didn't choose to believe in him in the first place. He persuaded you. He led you. And you can't choose to get out of him. He will retain you. He holds on to you. And so we can find assurance in the election of the Father. 2 Peter 1.3 says it this way, We are kept by the power of God through faith. There's another reason where we can be sure in times of doubt, and that is the execution of the Son. The election of the Father the execution of the Son. Look at verses 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, now notice that. Uh, he's explaining why it's such a big deal that you've been entrusted to Christ. And, and Christ is saying it this way. Uh, this is beautiful. It's good that we've been entrusted to Christ because he's saying, I am on a mission. I am not on a vacation. Like, I came down from heaven. I came from heaven not just to satisfy my own whims. I did this because God gave me something to do. He sent me to accomplish something. He gave me a task. And you know what that task is? That all who believe in him, that he would carry them to the last day and raise them up. Now, this is a beautiful thing to think about. He comes to execute the will of the Father. These are his orders, and he will fulfill his mission. Again, he, he is having us reflect on his grip, not ours. 
If I just tell you, all right, friends, you can be assured today, did you believe in Jesus? Are you believing in Jesus? Like, if that's the strategy that I take, it's only as strong as your faith. But if I say to you, Jesus, as evidenced by your belief, is holding on to you. He's been given a mission to carry you on to the last day. Do you see how that changes things? Friends, when we think of the doctrine of assurance from our perspective, and we start analyzing things in terms of what we can do, you're going to be miserably frustrated and I I think, frankly, scared to death. Just a survey for a moment. Uh, How many of you, seven out of seven days this week, executed everything on your mental or written to-do list? Me neither. If it was up to us, if it was in the realm of humanity, like, you know what, guys, as long as you just keep believing uh, everything's going to be cool, you're thinking, that's not cool. (laughs) I I don't want it to be entrusted to me. I rarely complete my to-do list. I have not kept every promise that I've ever extended. That is no assurance to me whatsoever. But to know that God always completes everything on his to-do list. God has never broken a promise, puts this in a different light. He is having us seek our assurance, not in our faithfulness, but in Christ's faithfulness. He has come to do the will of the Father. He has come to execute a mission. And what is this mission that he has been given? Well, according to the text, it is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. Now, notice how he says it with different words, different emphasis, but he's going to say something very similar in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. If Jesus has come to do the will of his Father, we need to know what the will of his Father is, and this is what it is. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you notice how he says the same thing, but from a different angle? So in the first one, in verse uh, 39, what he emphasizes is the human, I mean, excuse me, the divine side of things. If we're looking at the same thing from two different angles, I want you to note that in verse 39, we're seeing it from the divine perspective. And what does he say? Who does he refer to uh, enjoying this security? Uh, Those that the Father has given him. It doesn't have anything to do with you or me. We're like the, the passive recipients of this thing. And then notice that he said, I mean, what he says, he doesn't use actually even, even use the term father, but he actually uses the will of him who sent me. Now notice how he does it in verse 40. Instead of focusing on the divine, now he's going to focus on the human. This is the will of my father. Now he's using more personal terms. Instead of the one who sent me, now he's referring to him as his, as his father. Uh, What we have here is actually an expression uh, not just of determination by God, but of affection. Notice the next one. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Again, the emphasis here isn't divine sovereignty, but on human responsibility. Do you notice how he's describing the same thing from different angles? He's saying, hey, you want to know who the elect is? It's the one who (laughs) is looking to me in faith, the one who is trusting in me. We need an awareness of these two angles, otherwise you're going to be perpetually confused. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, we sell it on the back, talks about the difference between uh, what he 
it calls the helicopter view and the dashboard view. You know what it's like to be driving down the interstate and then all of a sudden, like, everybody's throwing on the brakes. <laughs> uh, in that particular moment, like, you know, some questions are going through our mind, like, why? What in the world happened up there? And another one that better be going through our mind is how? How am I going to respond in this? The how question is what you see from the dashboard. The brake lights have been hit, and now you need to know what to do with the car. That's the human perspective. It's what you can see. Uh, the, the bigger picture, the, the, the helicopter view from like the, the local news channel, <laughs> that is something that is not going to help you in that moment. It's good to know for the future, uh, but it's not the thing that you need to know in the present. There is a dashboard view, and there is the bigger view that helps you understand how'd that come to be? What went down that caused this? In a similar way, we're reading our Bibles, and we're looking at the doctrine of assurance, and sometimes we need to see it from the dashboard, and sometimes we need to see it from the helicopter. Let me give you a, a, a science analogy. I use this often, but I find it helpful. We normally talk about the sunrise and the sunset, knowing full well that the sun is not rising, nor is the sun setting. The earth is revolving. And yet, it is just an efficient, shorthand way to talk about things from our perspective. That's what I would call the dashboard view of life. We talk about sunrise, sunset, even though we know something bigger may be going on. In a similar way, friends, the Bible is calling those of you who are in here who have yet to believe in Christ to repent and to believe, to trust in Him, to depend upon Him. That is the dashboard view. That's what you need to know. But there is another angle on things that the text is reminding you of. If you have indeed believed, it is because He has been working to give you such faith. You've been revolving around Him. He's not revolving around you. You're trapped in His orbit. He has actually been drawing you to Himself. And that gives you confidence Christ is accomplishing what he set out to do. He will raise us up in the last day. And I want to be clear. When we talk about being raised up in the last day, what we have here is a promise of physical resurrection. That's what the original crowd would have been looking to. Uh, sometimes people think that, oh, uh, Christianity is just about life after death. Uh, you don't understand Christianity if you think it's about life after death. Everything talks about life after death. You know what the Bible talks about? Life after life after death. There will be actually physical life in which your body is raised up. Jesus is saying, I will get you all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. I'll get things back to where they need to be so that you can fully and freely walk with God forever. The Jews, even in that day, were looking to a hope of physical res resurrection we know that their most famous prayer was the Shema Yisrael uh, when they were praying, uh, God, oh, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. But there was another set of prayers that pious Jews in that day would pray, known as the Shimonai Ezrek, the 18 benedictions. They said these on a daily basis, 18 different pronounced statements. And you know the second one that every faithful Jew would have been saying in this particular day, listen to it, you are mighty, humbling the proud, strong, judging the ruthless. You live forevermore and raise the dead. You make the wind to return and the dew to fall. You nourish the living and bring the dead to life. 
You bring forth salvation for us in the blinking of an eye. Blessed are you, O Lord, who bring the dead to life. Jesus is saying that hope that we've had forever, I will execute. I will raise you up on the last day. And so we see this this other invitation to behold Christ who will execute his Father's will. If we are believing, Christ will bring it to the end. One said it this way, and I think this is good. In this case, the dawn doesn't just precede the day, but it promises it. Friends, your faith doesn't just precede eternal life, but it promises it. Do you understand how supernatural it is that you actually find hope in Jesus? Like, for those who aren't in Christ, he is a stench of death. He is repulsive when he's properly understood. And yet, you treasure him, you value him. Where did that come from? It is his gift to you. Jesus finishes his to-do list. He will bring you to the last day. That's why I like the, the verse that Phil read earlier from Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I think we all know what it's like as children to experience that fear that I experienced as a grown man at the base of this dam. I'm like, I need help. I need safety. I need protection. And yet the thing was, there was nowhere for us to go. Kids, though, they have another strategy. It's an interesting one. When they have those life-threatening moments, and somehow this works for them, they grab a blanket and they throw it over their head. (laughs) I mean, have you ever thought about the logic of that? Like, if there was really a physical threat, like, what will a blanket over your head do at any particular moment? It is absolutely ridiculous to think about, and yet, friends, you know, we, stu- we all here do still have this childish tendency to grab on to the wrong things and seek security. The, the foolish things, the things that, that will not provide any ultimate protection. I mean, I, I just think about this tendency uh, that some of us have just to, to, like, to, to like pull our head in on, on just the busyness of life. We get scared, we get rocked, we have major spiritual questions, and we're just like, you know what, I'm just going to put my head down, I'm just going to keep pushing through, I just need to like bury myself in some work, I need to get some stuff done. Uh, Some of us not only pull the blanket of of just this uh, busyness over our heads, some of us uh, pull the, the blanket of escape. You know, if I can just numb what I'm thinking at this particular moment, let me binge watch a few seasons of something on some streaming media website. Uh, let me just go down the rabbit hole of social media just a little longer so that I will not think of these things. It is just us, like, looking for safety in something that will not ultimately secure. Some on account of their own sin or the hardness of their circumstances or the inexplainable de- despair of the soul may be wondering, Is God done with me? 
And, and you, you look back and you think, well, maybe, maybe the high point of my walk with Christ uh, was when my marriage seemed strong or when I flourished at my last job or, or when this country seemed to be on a better track. You thought that's when things were good. But now God seems far away. You may think, he's nowhere done, near done with me. I'm just feeling done in. I want you to know that Christ through this text offers real security, assurance. Sourced in the election of the Father, He chose you as evidenced by the fact that you're trusting in Him. That wasn't of you, that was Him. And if you are trusting in Him, Christ will execute. He will bring things to the last and final day. And so I say to you, dear friends, when those moments come, and maybe you're in it even right now, cling to Christ knowing that he is clinging to you. Hold on. But hold on knowing that he's holding on to you. You're not like the proverbial cat holding on to the rope. <laughs> you are in the grip of grace. However hard days may seem, however unending some battles may feel, however discouraging some setbacks may be, this text assures us that Christ will not give up on us. That is not part of the eternal decree. So when I say cling to him, I would encourage you just to continue to avail yourself of the means that he has provided some of you are weak in that faith. You experience this doubt because you're not refreshing yourself with the promises of God and His Word on a regular basis and expressing that in prayer. Friends, that is to your own detriment. We take in God's Word and we pray not out of guilt, but because it is a source of grace for us. It is life for us. If you are taking in other things more than you are contemplating God's Word, no wonder you doubt. No wonder you fear. You need to avail yourself of the regular means of grace, of Word and prayer that may have provided another. You need to avail yourself of the means of grace of God's signs given to you in the church. Some of you want to believe in Jesus or saying that you believe in Jesus, but you're still kind of doubting, and yet you've, you have not yet obeyed him in baptism. Did you know that baptism is supposed to be an assuring thing for you? <laughs> the fact that uh, your faith has been uh, verified, listened to by a congregation of believers, and they are actually willing to say on behalf of God, yeah, you, you've been buried with Christ. You've been risen again with him. Does that save you? Absolutely not. But it is a sign. Those physical signs God gave to strengthen our faith. And you know what the other is? And this is why people get John 6 wrong so often. This text isn't primarily about communion, but it certainly does have implications for communion. When you partake of that bread and when you partake of that juice, you know what you're doing? You are expressing again that you are feeding on Christ by faith. He has provided himself for me. That's why I'm constantly trying to warn those of you who are in Christ to not punish yourself by not partaking of the table. If you are in Christ, and even if you have failed in that particular week, you should partake because Christ is still feeding you. He is still nourishing you. He is still providing for you. And may I give one more exhortation here? As you cling to Christ, friends, I think that because we are in a church family and these are indeed tough days that we need to remember that there may be others who are in need of such encouragement. 
If you know of a brother or sister in this church who seems to be on the down side of things right now, who seems to be distant from the Lord, it may be your place to come and remind them that Christ is holding on to you. The Father has chosen you. This is what it means to be a church family, to help one another in times of need. You say, yeah, I love the, love the clean in Christ. I love this idea of the security that you're offering here. Um, can I just throw out one more thing? If you're not in, if you don't enjoy this, just come to Christ. Come to Christ. He's been crucified for you. We can talk about the eternal purposes of God, but right now we don't need the helicopter view. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, I want you to see it squarely from the dashboard. You are headed off a proverbial cliff into eternal destruction. And Christ, even today, is giving you the opportunity to turn it around. Turn from your sin. Trust in me alone and you will be saved. Do that now. Do that today. And if you believe, it will be evidence that God himself has gripped you by his grace and pulled you in to his eternal safety. And so I think it'd be wise for us to close by testifying together of the assurance that can only be known in Christ. If, if you're in Christ today, this is what I'd like you to do in just a moment. We're going to have you stand with us and we're going to sing. We're going to sing, uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. I think that's a great song of testimony for us to conclude with. And if you're not in Christ, I'd invite you to stand with us and listen. Listen to the confidence in Christ that could be yours if you would just believe. Musicians, if you would, go ahead and make your way to the front. And church family, if you would prepare your heart to sing, to testify of the grip of grace that is on your life. Sing it with all of your heart. Uh, please stand as we sing, He will hold me fast.